Welcome to another exclusive podcast from Pituitary World News. This is Jorge Fascinetti. In today's podcast, Dr. Blevins talks about the genesis of pseudo-Cushing's and discusses a fascinating case of pseudo-Cushing syndrome due to alcohol ingestion. Here's Dr. Blevins. Good evening, everyone. This is Dr. Lewis Blevins of Pituitary World News, podcasting from Northern California. It was a very interesting day. Saw uh, quite a few uh, fascinating patients, and one in particular. And I want to relate his story to you a little later. Um, but I first want to talk about pseudo Cushing syndrome, and th- the case I'll share with you relates to that particular diagnosis, and that's why I want to do this topic today. So pseudo is a term that means false. Cushing syndrome is what it is. So this is a a false Cushing syndrome, it's it's a misnomer uh, because patients with pseudo-Cushing syndrome are oftentimes Cushingoid and have hypercortisolism. So I don't know why it was called that, but I think it was meant to distinguish from patients with hypercortisolism due to a defined anatomic cause rather than a functional cause, anatomic cause meaning a pituitary tumor, adrenal tumor, tumor uh, elsewhere, producing ACTH or an ectopic adrenal tumor, for example. So um, obviously it's important to distinguish between Cushing syndrome due to one of these defined tumors and those who have functional hypercortisolism because you want to try to find the tumor and treat the patients in the first group. But in the second group, you want to try to treat what's causing the hypercortisolism. So that's why this is very important. Um, Patients with uh, Cushing syndrome and pseudo-Cushing syndrome do suffer from their uh, hypercortisolism in a number of different ways. And there's a lot of controversy over whether you should treat the pseudo-Cushing's patients, say, to bring cortisol levels down to the normal range. So this definition, uh, it would follow, is pretty nebulous. Um, How do you know that a patient that doesn't have any defined tumor won't have a tumor become apparent two to five years later? Um, So when you start thinking about labeling people as either Cushing's or pseudo-Cushing's, if you call them pseudo-Cushing's, you certainly need to follow them to make sure they don't develop a lesion at some future point in time that deserves treatment. The pathophysiology of functional hypercortisolism, if you will, that's probably a better term, uh, is that there's something or some disease process or stress to the body that's activating the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis and um, thereby causing adrenal hypercortisolism. This axis is wrapped up, so they'll have high cortisol levels and sometimes won't suppress with dexamethasone. Uh, so that's um, a real hypercortisolemic state for most people, uh, and they don't often suppress, but it's really thought to be due to endogenous, uh, if you will, activation of the axis rather than a tumor producing ACTH driving the adrenals or an adrenal producing cortisol itself and then suppressing the pituitary gland. Some of the causes that have been propagated as causing pseudo-Cushing syndrome include depression. And this is not just someone who's sad and has to take an antidepressant, but severe melancholic depression, 
uh, where people tend to lose their appetite and are not functional and uh, often require hospitalization. Uh, psychotic depression has been thought to maybe be associated with pseudo-Cushing syndrome. Uh, alcoholism is perhaps the classic uh, underlying disorder that can cause pseudo-Cushing syndrome, and we'll talk about that later. Some believe that uh, any severe chronic illness can uh, activate the HPA axis, result in hypercortisolism, and make people sick. Um, <clears throat> it's even been proposed that uncontrolled diabetes mellitus uh, of a chronic nature uh, can do the same. But in that situation, you're getting into the chicken, the egg story, which came first, the pseudo Cushing's leading to the diabetes or the diabetes or the, the Cushing's leading to the diabetes or the diabetes leading to the pseudo Cushing syndrome. So sometimes you, you have to sit on the fence and not really go one way or another with your diagnosis, but just follow the patient over time to distinguish, is this real Cushing's or is this a patient who has severe depression or alcoholism, for example? The biochemistry I've alluded to, it's usually hypercortisolism can be mild, moderate, or severe. ACTH levels can be normal or elevated. Patients tend not to suppress with dexamethasone. Um, the uh, dexamethasone-suppressed CRH stimulation test has been touted as probably the best test to differentiate pseudo-Cushing's from real Cushing's so that uh, if you really have Cushing's due to a tumor, you, can, uh, you won't suppress with dexamethasone and you'll stimulate with, with um, CRH. Now, the dexamethasone dose used is not the overnight one milligram test. It's 0.5 milligram every six hours for two days. So usually pituitary Cushing's, for example, or adrenal Cushing's or, or even ectopic ACTH producing tumors will not suppress with that degree of dexamethasone. Some do, but even if they do, you can stimulate that with CRH. Uh, whereas if you have pseudo Cushing syndrome, you're probably going to suppress with that much dexamethasone. And then you're so suppressed, you're not going to stimulate with CRH. So that checking the cortisol 15 minutes after CRH administration after two days of dexamethasone seems to be the best test to distinguish pseudo Cushing's from real Cushing's. The Cushing's patients will have a cortisol level uh, higher than those with uh, um, uh, pseudo Cushing's where the cortisol levels will stay low. Now, the patient I've seen, and as usual through Pituitary World News, when we talk about patients, we change some of the features. Patients often can't identify themselves because we've changed some of the key points or left out uh, parts of the history. Uh, but uh, so I'll present the case, and the numbers are fairly close to real uh, based on my recollection. So let's say this is a 45-year-old man. Um, and Cushing seems to be more common in women than in men, but we see a lot of men with Cushing's. But let's say this is a man. And he has a definite history of alcoholism, binge drinking um, for years, uh, worsened during the period of COVID, uh, has medical complications of alcohol ingestion, including pancreatitis requiring the administration of pancreatic enzymes for digestion, has biochemical evidence of alcoholic liver disease with abnormal liver enzymes and the classic SGOT, uh, twice higher than the SGPT, his albumin's low at 2.5, his prothrombin time's elevated, so his liver synthetic function is abnormal, cholesterol's low. Um, 
has has some of the chronic stigmata of liver disease with an enlarged abdomen, probably has portal hypertension, uh, had presented with weight gain uh, and stretch marks as a consequence of that, but then had avascular necrosis of, uh, of the hip. And that prompted the physicians to send him for an endocrine consult because they were a little concerned about the possibility of uh, osteoporosis or some other lesion that accounted for this. And most endocrinologists know that steroids can cause avascular necrosis of the hip. So the endocrinologist who saw him checked a 24-hour urine cortisol, and it was elevated at 59 with normal up to 45. Uh, the ACTH level was 24, which was inappropriately normal, but it's kind of on that low cutoff. Uh, early papers suggested you could have adrenal disease and still have ACTH levels as high as 25. But in my opinion, once an adrenal patient starts to become, frankly, hypercortisolemic, usually the ACTH levels 15 is a better count off to differentiate pituitary tumor and uh, in adrenal disease because uh, the ACTH levels start to fall as the cortisol levels in the adrenal patients get high. Uh, but this is borderline ACTH. Uh, his overnight uh, dexamethasone suppression test cortisol was 14, normal less than 1.8. Uh, his dexamethasone during the test was 370, so he clearly took the medication and he just failed to suppress. And the endocrinologist wanted additional data, so they obtained about three to four salivary cortisol levels. And as I recall, the results ranged from 0 0.3 to 0 0.6. So we consider anywhere between 0.125 and 0.15 as the upper limit of normal for midnight salivary cortisol. These levels are all done close to midnight and were all markedly elevated. So in all, everything is consistent with the diagnosis of pathologic hypercortisolism. Uh, so they obtained an MRI of the pituitary and did the right study. They did dynamic contrast enhancement, and the pituitary gland was entirely normal. The stalk was midline. There were no hypoenhancing lesions. Nothing in the cavernous sinuses suggestive of pituitary adenoma. Because the ACTH was in that sort of borderline cutoff around 25, could be adrenal, could be pituitary, they did a CT of the adrenal glands and found that the adrenal glands were entirely normal. There were no nodules, no enlargement. Uh, they weren't small either. And that's when they decided to refer him to see me uh, in clinic. <clears throat> so I reviewed all of this data in his medical history. Uh, he'd been sober for a few weeks, uh, was in a rehabilitation program, uh, had no Cushing-Wade features on visual inspection. Um, and uh, my initial impression was this is probably going to be alcoholic pseudo-Cushing's, even though he had the biochemistry consistent with pathologic hypercortisolism. So what can you do to distinguish between pseudo-Cushing's and real Cushing's here if you don't want to do a DEX-CRH test uh, in a patient or, you're, or if you're unable to because they're hospitalized? Well, Keep in mind that patients who have pathologic hypercortisolism have a loss of the diurnal variation and cortisol production. People who have pseudo-Cushing's are going to preserve their diurnal variation. They're just going to have an, an HPA axis that's in overdrive and have these sorts of uh, features that he has. Uh, so I proceeded with a salivary cortisol profile. And those of you who heard me talk about this before know that I'll get two salivary samples in the morning two in the middle of the afternoon and then two prior to midnight. And if I have to, if the results aren't conclusive, I'll repeat the study and all of that. So I did a profile on him and, and we had results where 
I think his highest of the two morning samples was 0 0.8, the highest of the afternoon samples around 0 0.4, and the highest of the uh, evening samples was around 0 0.17. So all these are higher than what we usually see in, in normal people. Uh, and the midnight level uh, before he went to bed was higher than the cutoff you use for a normal salivary cortisol. But his profile is normal. He has a normal diurnal variation. So I felt fairly confident with that information that uh, this gentleman had uh, pseudo Cushing's, uh, probably due to his alcoholism. He was just recovering. He'd been sober for a couple of weeks. He didn't look Cushingoid. And this uh, physiology is pretty characteristic of this particular disorder. Further, we had the negative imaging studies that uh, pointed to the fact that he didn't have an obvious tumor that was uh, accounting for this particular condition. The causes, as I alluded to before, is thought to be activation of the HPA axis with the stress, and it's the stress of the illnesses, the liver disease, the pancreatic disease, the malnutrition, uh, the stress of alcohol and what it does in the brain and, and how it affects the HPA axis. And uh, Gary Wanda Hopkins has done a lot of research looking at the the uh, physiology, HPA axis physiology in patients with alcohol addiction, and this all fits with that. Some think that the liver may not metabolize cortisol as readily uh, as, it, as it should, and that can lead to, to decreased cortisol metabolism and, and higher cortisol levels. But I still believe this is, is due to the activation of the HPA axis with the stress of the illnesses that come with alcoholism plus the alcohol ingestion itself. Now, the best evidence that that's the case is that when you take people who have this problem and they stop drinking and get rehabilitation, uh, you see improvement in the biochemistry. And that's what I expect to see in this gentleman now that he's discontinued ethanol for a few weeks. Uh, my plan of follow-up is to look at his 24-year free cortisols on a couple of occasions and have a visit a month after hospital discharge, uh, he'll continue with his rehabilitation and working with therapists to, uh, and uh, probably support groups to, to manage the behavioral aspects of things and, and adjust his environment to, to uh, uh, be able to not drink alcohol in response to those triggers in the future. Uh, and I think that as, as long as you continue to work to manage the consequences of the alcoholism and improve his nutrition, we'll probably see over time that his uh, urine cortisol excretion weight will come down to normal. He'll suppress with dexamethasone. Salivary cortisol levels will come down uh, and he'll have overall better health as a result. I've seen a number of people in my career that where we diagnosed alcoholic pseudo-cushings and I never saw uh, a single one of them later go on to develop overt Cushing's due to pituitary adenoma or adrenal disease or whatever. Uh, and I think that uh, this disorder is one of those situations in medicine where, um, and as, as I was taught in medical school, that if you talk to the patient, they'll tell you what's wrong with them. So taking the history leads you to the diagnosis in this particular situation. And you can see how laboratory values, if you don't understand what they're supposed to be, in certain situations, such as in alcoholic Cushing's, they can actually lead you down the primrose path, believing that you're seeing a patient with pituitary Cushing's, uh, as was, I think, thought with this particular individual. Um, 
So it's it's just further in support of the fact that you have to have a good history. You have to have the biochemical data to support or refute what you're thinking about based on the history. Uh, and uh, if you uh, put it all together, ultimately you can arrive at a diagnostic conclusion and develop a plan of follow-up for your patient. Um, one of these days, I'm sure I'll see someone where we thought it was depression or alcoholism who actually proves to have a pituitary tumor uh, uh, rear its ugly head at some point. But uh, to date, that's not happened in my practice. So at any rate, I hope this has helped you understand medical decision-making and also the uh, genesis of this particular disorder. And um, I don't think I'd be doing a job as a physician if I didn't end it with drink responsibly, think about your health, think about the health of others, and the effect that alcohol intake can have on your uh, relationships uh, as well. So again, this is Dr. Lewis Blevins at Pituitary World News. Uh, thanks for listening. Take care. Have a wonderful holiday season. A quick reminder that Pituitary World News is a non-profit organization largely supported by contributions from people like you. If you'd like to donate, please visit pituitaryworldnews.org and click on the Donate button. Thank you, and thank you for listening.